Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. A good friend of mine texted me this past week and asked if I had ever preached on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, our scripture reading this morning. It's, it's a really rich and gospel, gospel-focused passage. Most preachers, at some point in their tenure, have preached through Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And my response to him was that I rarely preach out of the New Testament. Not that I have anything against the New Testament. Don't, don't misunderstand me here. I believe that it's inspired. I believe that it's inerrant. I believe that it's infallible. Um, but I feel like it can be so easy for us to spend our time in the New Testament without considering the Old Testament. Think about this. When was the last time you did your devotions in the book of Obadiah? Or who has scripture memory verses around their house from the book of Nahum? It's not too often that we, that we work through the Old Testament in our devotions, and it, it can be difficult to do so because of the language that's there, because of the unfamiliarity that's there, and so we quickly want to get to our New Testament to a book like Philippians that's a little more comfortable for us. But I'm often drawn to the Old Testament because there's so much richness in the Old Testament that helps us understand the New Testament. We know that our Bible, when you read our Bible, we read from left to right, and starting in the left is the Old Testament, and then you read to the New Testament. And so there's, there's foundational truths to be found in the Old Testament that help us understand our New Testament better. And so I don't want to overlook these, these great truths that Scripture contains in the Old Testament. And you guys know that I have a particular affinity towards the Psalms, but I realized I've, I've never fully explained why I focus so much on the Psalms. If I were to give you guys full disclosure, and there's few of you, you won't tell anyone. But as I, as I fill the pulpit on occasion here like I do, and it's always a joy to do so, my eventual goal is to preach through the entire Psalter, all 150 psalms. But my, my love for the psalms, I think, stems from the fact that the theme of the Psalter is so rich for me. 
the theme of the book of Psalms, if, if someone were to ask you, what are the Psalms about? From Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, the longest book in the Bible, what is it about? And it all boils down to one word, and that is worship. If you were to give a one-word summary, a one-word synopsis of the entire Psalms, it would be the theme of worship. Whether the psalmist is lamenting to God or praising God, it's all about worship, isn't it? And that's what I've brought out some in previous psalms that we looked at. And I love that fact because as a Christian, our entire lives are about worship, aren't they? Whether it be in lament or in praise, our life is focused on worship. Whether life is the pits or you just struck gold, it's all about worship. And I also appreciate how, how real the Psalms are for us. And what I mean by that is, in a sense, you can really feel the emotion, the, the struggles, the triumphs, and the joys that the psalmist has. When we look at the Psalms and a psalm like 130 that's before us today, you can see that it's written in the first person. Out of the depths, I called to you. Out of the depths, I cried to you. It's in the first person by the psalmist, which really brings out their emotion, and you can connect with that. <clears throat> you can understand that. You can hear their heart as they write that, whether it be David or Asaph or Solomon. Whoever's writing the psalm, you can hear their heart. And you can understand it. You can sympathize with them. Their, their hearts being poured out on paper. And that's true of, of Psalm 130 this morning. And so I'll start by, by reading the text for us. Psalm 130, once again, I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard. <clears throat> and the text says this, A song of a sense. Out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed the watchman for the morning. O Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thus reads the word of the Lord this morning. One of the great joys of the Christian life as we interact with the church is getting to hear the testimonies of other believers. 
It's, it's an amazing encouragement to the soul to hear how the Lord has transformed someone's life. When we were living in Southern California, <clears throat> a dear friend of ours started a podcast called Ordinary People with Extraordinary Lives. This is not a paid advertisement. Her goal in this podcast was to sit down with believers and listen to the testimony of God's grace in their lives. Tiffany and I had, had the privilege of being a part of that podcast, and it was so good to recount what the Lord had done in our lives. A great reminder to us. You think back on it, you think back on your own testimony, and you can see God's hand at work, can't you? How amazing that is. One of the unique things about a testimony is that they come in all shapes and sizes. You have individuals who were born and raised in a Christian home. Very simple testimony, yet still profound. And then you have others on the other side who were drug abusers, living in gangs on the streets. And you have everything in between. Families all around the world, with all kinds of different backgrounds, share a testimony. They're unique, but they're powerful. John Wesley, the great evangelist and reformer in the Church of England, his testimony is known by many. You've probably heard the fact that he went to a service in London one evening in May, and someone read the introduction to Luther's work on the book of Romans, a very rich, rich part of Scripture. And John Wesley records that his heart was, quote, strangely warmed. You've heard that before. But what many people do not know is that earlier that same day, John Wesley had attended a Vesper service, a, a similar service, at St. Paul's Cathedral. And the anthem that was sung that day was Psalm 130. And John Wesley writes that he was so moved by this anthem. He, he put himself with the psalmist here, John Wesley said, out of the depths, I, John Wesley, called to you, O Lord. He was so moved by this anthem, and God used Psalm 130 to open his heart for the gospel. It's a powerful testimony. But every testimony, when you think about it, every testimony no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, contains the forgiveness of God. There's, there's not a single believer, to put it another way, who has come to faith without the compassion or the forgiveness of God. This psalm very clearly displays that forgiveness that every believer has been given. 
You talk about testimonies coming from a range of a different, different walks of life, and yet every single one, every single one, talks about the forgiveness and the compassion of God. It's, it's a great forgiveness, as I've titled this sermon. If you ask yourself the question this morning, as you consider your own testimony, what would my testimony look like without the forgiveness of God, without the compassion of God? And I can tell you that it wouldn't be a testimony. This psalm before us, Psalm 130, it's, it's called a song of ascents. You can see that superscription there at the top of the psalm which means that the Israelites would have sung this, and along with several, several others here in the text. You can see it in all the surrounding psalms as well. But the Israelites would have sung this as they ascended the mountain to Jerusalem for their religious feasts and festivals. Part of the geography of Israel is that Jerusalem does sit on a mountain, so quite literally, you go up to Jerusalem no matter which direction you're coming from. And so it's a song of ascents because they sang it as they ascended the mountain up to Zion, up to Jerusalem. There's one writer who says, quote, Psalm 130 is itself a literal song of ascents, for it climbs from the abyss of depression to the high ground of steadfast hope. End quote. This psalm so clearly and so simply teaches the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins that Martin Luther called this a Pauline psalm, as if it were written by the Apostle Paul. It's an easily understood psalm. The theology as we look through it here today, it's not difficult to explain. It's not difficult to understand. And yet it contains one of the most beautiful truths for all of us. Namely, that God forgives sin. There is great forgiveness. And as I mentioned before, I appreciate how real the Psalms are. And this Psalm is extremely tangible to us. It helps us find the words to express when we are in need of forgiveness. It provides hope and comfort to guys like John Wesley and Martin Luther. It's a psalm that we read over and over and over again when we find ourselves in the struggle of sin. And the reality is that the struggle of sin is permanent in our lives here on earth. And so this psalm in particular is one that we recite to ourselves over and over and over again. When we, when we can't find the words to express our lament, our frustration to God, Psalm 130 sits here in our text, so readily helpful. Forgiveness, as this psalm focuses on, is something that's continually a part of the Christian diet. 
So as we, as we come to this psalm, it proved to be difficult in order to structure an outline for it. It's very devotional, as you can see, when you look at this psalm. So you'll, you'll have to forgive my outline. It's a bit choppy. I give myself credit, though. I did alliterate it. But I think it's best to divide this text into sections of two verses each. So you have verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, 5 and 6, and 7 and 8, kind of coupled together to provide our outline for us this morning, four main points. And it's my prayer that this psalm would show us a model of forgiveness and show us how we worship God because of the forgiveness that he gives. So let's begin in verses 1 and 2. Our first point here is the cry to God from sin. The cry to God from sin. If you want to simply name it, it would be the cry or the call. It says, Out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If, Excuse me, that's the end of verse 2. But from the outset of this psalm, when we look at these first two verses, it's nothing particularly new to us. We, we recognize this wording here pretty simply. In verse 1, that, that term of depths that you see, it's something that's repeated. It's a, it's a refrain in the psalms over and over again. In Psalm 71, verse 20, it says, You who have shown me many troubles and evils will revive me again and bring me up from the depths of the earth. Psalm 88, 6, You have put me in the pit far below, in the depths, in dark places. And then in Psalm 107, verse 26, Speaking of workers of iniquity, it says, They went up to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in the calamity. It may be more familiar to us from our recent study of the book of Jonah, and I, I say the term recent study very loosely. It was back in Jonah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, when Jonah, having been swallowed by the fish at this point, he says, I called out of my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me. I cried for help from the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current surrounded me. All your breakers and waves passed over me. It's, it's familiar language to us. And this concept of, of depths that we see in verse 1, it's a low point. It's despair, it's calamity, it's terror. The psalmist is in a dire condition. He, he's, he's drowning in the sea of troubles, is what he is. And it's, you can hear the desperation in his voice. I, I called to you, hear my voice, let your ear be attentive to me. Think of it like an individual who's crushed underneath 
a fallen building, and they're just saying over and over again, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? The psalmist finds himself struggling in sin, and he's desperate to get out. This isn't a a calm, collected, cool-mannered request. It's an urgent desire, an urgent plea to be saved from his present circumstances, to be pulled out of the depths of sin and guilt that he has found himself in. But I want us to note as we look at the cry of the psalmist, the call of the psalmist here, I want you to know where the psalmist directs his plea. Where does he direct his plea? He he goes directly to the covenant-keeping God. He uses the covenant name of God there. I called to you, O Yahweh. And he he recognizes the power and the position that God is in. For in the second stanza, there in verse 2, he says, O Lord, using the title that God has, using the sovereign title as Lord, he recognizes the power and the position that God is in. I called to you, O Yahweh, O Lord, hear my voice. We live in a world today where our problems are so readily solved by a number of quick fixes and ready-made solutions. Perpetually, my favorite one of these is, have you turned it off and turned it back on again? And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And at the same time, along the same token, We tend to look anywhere and everywhere for an answer to our struggles. Are you getting enough sleep? Have you tried a diet? Are you gluten-free? Do you have many credit cards? What's your credit like? Do you have something in savings? We, we look anywhere and everywhere for an answer to our struggles. But the psalmist here, rather than trying to reason his way through sin, rather than trying to explain it away, give some cheap answer, he wastes no time in taking his plea directly to the throne of God. It's interesting, going back to the book of Jonah again in our previous study, it wasn't until Jonah called out to God in the belly of the fish, in the depths, it wasn't until then that things started to really look up for Jonah, quite literally. And that's exactly where the psalmist starts. He knows that the solution to rid himself of his guilt and shame cannot be found within the world, but that it must be solved in the throne room of grace. So dear friends, that that challenge is before us this morning. When you find yourself in sin, when you find yourself struggling in temptation, don't turn to the self-help section in Barnes & Noble. Don't try and resolve it 
with another night's sleep. Go to the Lord. He is the only one who has a solution. So the psalmist continues. In verses 3 and 4, we have the comfort that God forgives. We've seen the cry to God from sin, and now we look at the comfort that God forgives. He says this, If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist is is making a simple contrast in verses 3 and 4 to demonstrate the character of God to the redeemed. And he first points out the totality of man's sinfulness, that, that if God kept a record of your sins, there is no way you could stand before him in innocence. Romans chapter 3 makes that quite plain. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, not even one. One individual says that the writer of that, that short text had to give a clarity to it because when he says there is none righteous, you may have someone who says, but what about me? And the writer says, no, not even you. If God kept a record of your sins, there's no way you could stand before him innocently. The psalmist knows that God is omniscient. He knows that God knows all things and that no sin can go hidden from God's sight. And he says that if God were to keep a track of all your sins, you would be done for. It's kind of like the concept of the elf on the shelf. That became a thing when I was a teenager for some reason. But the premise of it is, and if you're not familiar with it, kudos to you, but the premise of the elf on the shelf is the fact that there's this elf who is on the shelf, duh, and he watches over you and reports back to Santa if you've been good or bad. Which... I understand that it's basically just a ploy for parents to get their kids to behave during the holiday season. But to play on this illustration a little bit, if God were like that, we would all be getting coal for Christmas, wouldn't we? The the psalmist poses a question in verse 3 that automatically institutes a negative answer. Who could stand? Nobody. There's no one who could stand. The only answer to this hypothetical question is no one. God sees all of your sins. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You can hide nothing from God. And the result, the result of your sin before a holy God is death. 
Romans 6.23 tells us that for the wages of sin is death. But, verse 4 turns a corner. We, we titled this section, The Comfort That God Gives, so we got to get to the comfort. And much like Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, But God, this is the gospel corner that the psalmist turns here in Psalm 130. This is why Luther considered this to be a Pauline psalm. The psalmist says in verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, the beauty of the gospel here is not that, is not that God keeps a record, but rather it's kind of like what we know in Psalm 103 where it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It was actually one of the teaching points up at camp this weekend is the forgiveness of God. God is one who forgives. And that concept of east and west came up. As we understand it, east and west can never be combined. You can never go start going east and end up going west. Now you can go north and eventually go south, and then go north again. But the east and the west, they can't be combined. They don't stand together. They're separated like oil and water. Isaiah, in the first chapter of his writing, he says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This past Christmas, Tiffany, as a native Californian, got to really experience a whiteout where everywhere is white. And it just is so pure and so clean. And friends, that's how we can understand the forgiveness of God, especially as Isaiah puts it, though your sins are as scarlet, which is a deep red, and it's a very hard red to get out of fabrics. Yahweh says they will be as white as snow, as if the scarlet was never there. With God, there is true forgiveness. When we look at this, when we look at this verse in, in verse 4, uh, but with you there is forgiveness, that term forgiveness actually has a definite article in front of it in the Hebrew. It should say literally, but with you there is the forgiveness. It's, it's the true forgiveness. It's the right forgiveness. It's the forgiveness that we really need. So many times in life, we have friends and family who refuse to forgive. They hold these grudges against you. They remember your sins. But God is not like that. 
It's, it's not that God forgets in the sense that we understand forgets, but rather he chooses to disregard. And the ultimate goal of this is reverence. It seems kind of odd there in verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You would think it would say something else. You would think it would say something like, with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved or that you may be praised. But reverence here, it's a good understanding for us so that we don't take forgiveness for granted. It shouldn't be presumed upon, if that makes sense. In Romans chapter 6, you guys are familiar with this. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What is Paul's response? May it never be. An emphatic negative. We shouldn't just assume that since God forgives, I can just go on sinning and I'll catch up with him later. Put it on my tab and I'll pay it off later. No, the forgiveness that God gives ultimately leads to worship. This is what makes the Christian testimony so phenomenal is because we understand that it is the Lord and only the Lord who can truly forgive our sins, and so our result is worship. That's why I love hearing testimonies, because it's just a recounting of praise to God for what he's done. It's a joy to know that God has removed our sins. And so the psalmist continues in verses 5 and 6. We have the certainty of God's forgiveness. The certainty of God's forgiveness. And as we look at these verses, it says, I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope. And for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. And the Hebrew reiterates itself, the watchman for the morning. When you look at, at these verses here, there's, there's two terms that really stick out to us. It's hope and wait. And the NASB actually has these flipped around. It says, I wait for Yahweh. My soul does wait, and for his word do I hope. Here, this text says, I hope for Yahweh. My soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. It's, it's difficult to find the nuance between these two terms. They're so closely related in what they're conveying. But it's, it's helpful to understand that both terms they point to an expectant hope, an expectant waiting, knowing that something is going to happen with absolute certainty. The psalmist is saying that there is great certainty in the character of God, particularly in God's compassion and his forgiveness. 
and he is going to wait for the Lord. It's interesting. The concept of waiting is one that we don't, we don't do well with. Amazon two-day shipping is a killer. Nowadays, in cities, in larger cities like New York City, you can actually get your package on the same day. And even that's too slow. You go to an airport, you're going to understand what waiting is real quick. You wait. On both sides of the plane, mind you, you wait to get in. You wait to go through security. Then you wait to get on the plane. Then, as you're boarding the plane, you have to wait to take your seat. And then the plane's moving, and now you're really waiting to get to where you're going. Then you get there, and you have to wait to stand up, wait to get off the plane, wait for your bag, wait for whoever's picking you up. Hopefully they're not late. And then it's over. We don't do well with waiting. But the psalmist here knows that that waiting has a certainty to it at the end of it. A joy that only God can fulfill. He, he compares it, interestingly, to the watchman who is waiting expectantly for the morning. Now the concept of a watchman here. And watchman in scripture, you really had two types of watchmen, whether it was a shepherd or, or military personnel, both overnight, if they were a night watch, which is what this psalm is pointing to, they, were, they would be waiting for the morning to come. In our world, I think the movies give a really bad rap to watchmen. You think about it like the guard who's, who's standing watch over some precious artifact or or a military watch who's keeping the defenses of a city. In movies today, they're often portrayed as very useless. The, the concept of, of mission impossible is pretty boring to us because we know that the mission is clearly possible eight movies later. But a watchman, in, in reality, a watchman is someone who needs to be incredibly tough, incredibly mentally strong. A lot of military personnel, especially over in Vietnam, keeping watch for the night. How terrifying that must be. You're sitting there, what was that? I heard something over there. A twig cracks. Or your eyes are playing tricks on you, I think I saw something. But you're sitting there on night watch. And in the back of your mind, you're waiting so expectantly for the dawn. You're waiting to see the first light of morning so you can take a break. And that's exactly the, the idea that the psalmist has here, that he is watching so closely with so great a focus so that when the dawn comes, there will be rest. Here, here the psalmist, he's casting aside all doubt and uncertainty about God and his word. He's so focused on God that worry isn't on the table for him. 
in Isaiah chapter 40, you may have this on your wall at home. It says, Yet those who hope in the Lord will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That's the waiting that the psalmist has envisioned here. He knows that the forgiveness of God, he knows it so that when the darkness looms large, he can rest easy because he knows God. He knows his Bible, as the text tells us. There's no doubt that God will forgive because God's word says so. And so the psalmist must have patient faith. Essentially, to boil it down, he's saying, I know that only God can forgive me of my sin, so I must trust him. I must have faith that he hears and that he does forgive me. I know that he does. I know that he will. And so I wait on the Lord. One of the biggest struggles for for believers today, is the assurance of salvation. And it often stems from the fact that they still sin. And so they ask themselves the question, since I am still sinning, does God still forgive? You may have had this struggle before. You find yourself doing something stupid. And you catch yourself, and you say, Lord, What am I doing? Why am I here? I know better than this. And so the question, since I'm still sinning, does God still forgive? And the psalmist is saying resoundingly, yes, he does. It's it's why this psalm needs to be memorized, it needs to be recited, it needs to be internalized, because we constantly struggle with sin, and we, like the psalmist, must continually, over and over again, run to God for forgiveness. And we can know with certainty that God forgives. In 1 John 1.9, John makes it clear, talking about assurance of salvation, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's assurance there. God most certainly does forgive. And so lastly... In verses 7 and 8, we have the confidence of complete forgiveness. The confidence of complete forgiveness. We've seen the cry, the comfort, the certainty, and now the confidence. The psalmist says this, O Israel, wait for Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. With full assurance, the psalmist turns to his fellow worshipers and he implores them to wait for God. It's actually a command. Wait 
for Yahweh. It's, it's an expectant hope in God. Remember, the term hope and waits are nearly interchangeable. But the reasoning the psalmist gives is it's, it's focused on who God is. It's interesting to see the progression that takes place in verses 7 and 8. You begin with waiting on God because of his loving kindness, verse 7 says. And that loving kindness is displayed, next line down, in his abundant redemption. And that redemption in verse 8 is for all his iniquities. Did you know that this is the only place in Scripture, the only place where redemption is linked exclusively to sin. This is the only place in your entire Bible where redemption is exclusively linked to sin. Usually, when you hear of redemption in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, it includes a physical calamity that the writer needs saving out of, that the writer needs to be redeemed from. And for the people of Israel... This happens over and over again. They needed to be redeemed from Egypt. They needed to be redeemed from Babylon. They were physically conquered by peoples. They struggled mightily. They had physical ailments that they cried out to God for redemption from. But much more than that, the psalmist is pointing out that they needed spiritual redemption, not just physical redemption. And the same is true of us, isn't it? You can have everything you ever want in this life, everything you ever need, with no issues, and still be on track for hell. And so the psalmist eagerly tells his fellow Israelites that while they have had much physical redemption, a greater redemption is coming. He's looking forward. His hope is so great that he knows what's coming. Even in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Christ's actual uh, death on the cross, he knows the forgiveness that's coming. His hope is confident. Friends, there will be a day where forgiveness will no longer be needed. Have you ever thought about that? There will come a day when we no longer need to ask for forgiveness. Where sin will be no more there will no longer be a struggle against our fleshly desires, and we will be with the Lord. We will no longer be hoping in the Lord. We will be with him. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day. But until then, we eagerly wait for the Lord, don't we? 
We call out to him when we fail, knowing with great certainty that he will forgive us of our sins and make us to be more like him. This is a great forgiveness, amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this great forgiveness. Knowing, Lord, that you have separated our sins from us, that you no longer count them against us, but that we can run to you, Lord, in times of trouble, knowing that you will hear us, that you understand our cry, and that you, with great certainty, will forgive us. Lord, we thank you so much for this forgiveness. We pray that as you have forgiven us, Lord, may we forgive others. May we learn to love and cherish those around us just as you have loved and cherished us. We thank you, Lord, for your Son, for the redemption that we have spiritually from death to life. So it's in the great and wonderful name of of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.